Welcome to Coffee House. People take for granted the distinction and accomplishments of the Western world. It is a culture now most deliberately associated with evil, colonialism, racism, slavery, and the scourge of whiteness, the devil pigment. One man not as dashing, clever, or vicious as Christopher Hitchens has set out to understand the war on the West. The book is called The War on the West by Douglas Murray. As always, we'll go through the contents, we'll do an analysis to see the qualities and lack thereof of the book, and we will have a big picture section where we try to tie it into a broader understanding of the world. I currently have five books that are in the works for episodes that I'm either reading or outlining episodes for, and I'm going to stick to it. They'll be you know in between episodes based on other things, but I'm going to stick to it, get through the five books, and then we'll put up five more to make this whole thing a little more streamlined, a little easier. And I think that's up on Twitter if anybody is interested. So the contents. The West was a problem. Dissolution was the solution. This was the idea, is that the West was the source of the problems, and you had to get rid of it to rectify them. So racism, of course, was uh, one of the big topics that has been repeated and reinvigorated in the last several years. And one thing that the author points out is that you still have a caste system in India, and racism is prevalent in various countries all throughout the world and all throughout history, but Western society gets this special treatment and particular standards. And this is rooted, actually, in a very patronizing idea that the West is treated as responsible, and so therefore responsible for their failings, whereas the rest of the world is infantilized and treated as pure, and therefore not responsible, because they're just not capable. And there's not allowed any positives of the Western world, any positives about what the West has accomplished. And you have a whole generation now that is not familiar in the way the previous generations were with the ideas of free thought and free expression. So, race is a category. of So, the Western world may be majority white, and this is something that is referenced as a strike against it, but it's like saying that Africa is a majority black, and there's just been this long-term normalization of attacks on white as a category. So, CRT, that's something that's been in the news repeatedly recently. That's something that has been thrust into the cultural moment. You didn't have the ostentatious kind of racism that you had in other eras of the United States and the Western world in general. So academics had to look for hidden racism to be able to use. So theorists like, and I use that term loosely, like Bell, decided that progress was a mirage. And the way to get these things across was using arguments, but not arguments based on evidence. It was just a list of unprovable assertions. This is kind of the modus operandi of this type of academic so assertions like white people are racist from birth, that the idea of colorblindness is racist, that racism itself must be prejudice plus power, as opposed to the classic definition. There are references to Foucault, white fragility by Robin D'Angelo, that was another one of the major tomes related to this, which actually, it sold, what, like three quarters of a million copies or something like that. And it always had these unfalsifiable claims and those childish uh, tricks that say that, you know, uh, like the uh, witches, the witch hunts, where you are damned if you do, damned if you don't. You better say that you're a horrible racist or if you deny your racism, then you are a horrible racist. These ideas like whiteness being contagious and that black people could act white, <laughs> they could catch whiteness and then act it out. And the whole thing about George Floyd, and the author is actually uh, very charitable, I'll say, to uh, George Floyd as the concept. 
But around this time, there were these uh, polls taking, taken from people. So one of them said that uh, 22% of very liberal people who had their poll taken said that around 10,000 unarmed black men were killed in this particular year. So they had to guess how many people were killed, how many unarmed black men were killed in a particular year. Another, those were very liberals. Another group said that it was 1,000 to 10,000, somewhere in there. And the actual number was 10 for this year. We've been over these numbers before, but actually more police officers were killed by black assailants than unarmed black men were killed by police officers. So you can attribute this to extreme news coverage, round-the-clock amplification of these cases, these outlier cases, extremely outlier cases. And to my surprise, the author actually references Tony Timpa, which was an extremely similar situation, but didn't get a tenth, not even a tenth, didn't get one one hundred thousandth (laughs) the coverage that the George Floyd one did, even though they were virtually identical in the way that it worked out. So Tony Timba happened to be white. He called the police himself because he was uh, afraid and off of his medication. The police arrived and they all had body cameras, so it was all on video. He was unarmed. They wrestled him to the ground and held him to the ground. He pleaded for his life about 30 times. He pleaded for help. He said repeatedly, you're going to kill me. He was held for around 13 minutes and eventually no officer was charged in the unlawful or unjust death of Tony Timba. So the point is that this is a political and media outrage that is amplified when it comes to George Floyd, whereas other ones are ignored. They don't have the same utility as other ones do. Along those same lines, there are things like moral panics, and we saw lots of these on racial, race-based moral panics. We saw lots of these for a while there, and several are recounted in the book. Like, there's one where there was uh, somebody who was reported as walking around in KKK gear and having a whip. This person was walking around this campus, I think it was at the University of Indiana, with a whip in KKK gear. And so a lot of the students were terrified and they were calling administrators and calling police, etc. And so there are all these tweets and uh, emails and things that went out that said, be careful, be very careful, because there's somebody in KKK gear walking around. It turned out to be a Dominican monk who was actually holding a rosary. So what they were holding was a rosary. It wasn't a whip. There was another case where there were shoelaces on a tree that they said were a noose, but somebody had just put them up there so somebody else who had lost them could see them if they came by. Sarah Silverman tweeted about a swastika on the street. I remember this one, a swastika on the street. It actually turned out that this was just notation used by construction workers to indicate what they needed to do at a particular area. And Jesse Smollett, of course. And people forget how many credulous responses there were to that incredible nonsense, uh, like from Stephen Colbert, who is just an absolutely horrible person now. Then we go into the idea about uh, racist babies, uh, the, the anti-racist baby by Ibram X. Candy, which is one of the major books of the CRT movement and all the academics in this area. There was one, and I did not know this because I haven't read that book. I don't want to, you know, take the IQ hit from having read that or White Fragility. Uh, at some point, I'm going to have to. I'm just going to have to steal myself and do it. But anyway, there's apparently a whole chapter of the book. That is about a racist teacher, quote-unquote racist teacher, who called on an eager white student instead of a shy black girl in one of Kendi's classes. So this is just a white teacher calls on a white student instead of a shy black girl. An entire chapter is based on this as an example of the evil racism that is permeating our culture. And this is kind of really indicative of what they have to do, the lengths they have to go to maintain this persecution fantasy. So I actually have an anecdote related to this. I was uh, I went to a breakfast place and I sat up at the bar area. 
you know, at the breakfast place. And so I sat there and I ordered and I was taking my time. I was by myself. So I was just taking my time and I could just listen in on what was going on around me. So a black man sat to my left at one point. He sat down. Within a minute, the waiter came over to him, you know, asked him what he wanted, if he wanted something to drink, took the order, all that sort of thing. And it was fine. And I was waiting for my food. He was waiting for his food. I think my food came in the interim. And then uh, a woman, a black woman sat down next to me to my right. And she was talking on the phone. And it took about five minutes or so. It, it took a little longer than you would expect for the waiter at the at the bar to come up to her and ask her if she wanted something to drink, something like that. So she's talking on the phone. And after the waiter walks away, then she just goes on this rant to her friend about how racist the place was and uh, and that they're just uh, discriminating against black people. Now, this was a, a beautiful microcosm of the thing that you expect happens everywhere and how racism works in, in modern America is that there's such a limited purview and a biased means of analyzing data. <laughs> you know, uh, we used to say anecdotes, you know, the plural of anecdote isn't data. Uh, now they say it's my lived experience, so just don't question it. But this is really how it works, is that you have such a, a limited view of the world. It's so easy to just pull things out of it to meet some kind of a an ideology because you just don't have the capacity to think about things in a broader, more effective way. But beyond that, uh, the the definitions are hilarious from Candy of what racism is. Racist is one who engages in racist actions. Anti-racist is one who engages in anti-racist actions. Of course, those things. Just anybody with a modicum of self-respect <laughs> or a desire to make things more understandable rather than more opaque I mean, obviously, they wouldn't use the, the word itself within the definition of the word. The reality, the author suggests, is that racist becomes just whatever Kennedy doesn't like. That becomes racist, and whatever he likes becomes anti-racist. So there were these Eliminate Whiteness from Campus initiatives... Uh, there's some talk about Disney employees and how there were these trainings that were coming down about how you can never question black lived experience. Uh, these training documents got removed at some point and then Disney blamed somebody for taking it out of context or something like that. There's this one ap academic who explicitly said that she wanted to unload a revolver into the head of any white person that got in her way. And it was this fantasy that she shared. So then there's some discussion about China and opioids, opioids from China and how dangerous those things are and how little it's actually talked about and there's nothing being done to try to halt it. We had more than 100,000 opioid overdoses over the past year, to my recollection, and a lot of other terrible things going on in China, so like forced abortions which involve things like uh, children being born alive and then being thrown into water. But it, women who are pregnant and about to have a child who aren't supposed to, they'll be chased down by authorities and forced to have abortions. Needles into the head of the baby to put it down. And this happens all over China. There was this uh, reference to this propaganda that was used in Soviet Russia that's really interesting, where there was a woman who was in an interracial relationship in the United States. And then the United people in the United States were depicted as being super racist toward her. And so she flees to Soviet Russia and is treated with you know respect and support and all that sort of thing. But this is the kind of propaganda that goes on in Russia and China. So they try to paint, and it makes it so much easier for them, obviously. When you have many of the leaders in the entire half of the country that's saying that it's absolutely true that this place is a horrible racist wasteland and sexist wasteland, it helps those countries be able to depict the country, the United States, as that to their own people. Of course, these things really depend on a lack of knowledge about history and the presumption that nobody does wrong unless the West makes them do it.
you know, if other countries do these horrible things, then it has to be seen as some kind of an outgrowth of Western ideas and uh, in- ignorance of history outside of the West. So if you knew the history, obviously, of, of all those other countries, then you could see that it couldn't be just a source of Western evil that caused it. And in Britain, so 50% of people have never heard of Lenin in Britain, and 70% of people had never heard of Mao. There is something so absolutely horrendous about our education related to communism and socialism in general. But there's this idea that the West is uniquely evil and exporting their evil all over the world. So the need is to revise the revisionists, because everybody's going through this revisionist history now, so the author talks about revising the revisionists. So moving on to history, and then we get the 1619 Project by Kimberly Crenshaw, right? And I remember this when it unraveled as well. So the 1619 Project, it was called the true founding of the United States as opposed to Independence Day. So 1619 was better than 1776. And then uh, the New York Times, which had sponsored this uh, study, oh, that's a loose term I'm using there, then said it never made the claim. And then it stealth edited a bunch of pages that had explicitly expressed that they were understanding 1619 as our true founding. And they explicitly said, no, that's not at all what we said, that it was the true founding. And then um, it went and edited things that said that specifically. Then you have the riots, and they were claimed, Kimberly Crenshaw um, explicitly claimed the riots. They were called the 1619 riots, and she said it would be an honor for them to be regarded as such. There was the toppling of statues, and this is another hilarious thing, is that it started with Confederates, and then there was the attempted use of the slippery slope fallacy that says that, no, it'll just be the Confederates, you know, all the worst people. We're not going to get to all the founders of the country. That's ridiculous. Then, of course, that's exactly where it went, especially post-George Floyd. Like, uh, the statues of Columbus in 2020 were torn down either by crowds or, you know, by legislatures legally. Within a month in Portland, they pulled down statues of George Washington and burned a flag, an American flag on his head. They pulled down statues of Thomas Jefferson soon after that. In Boston, they took down statues of Abe Lincoln. One student at one school, after one of these statues had been taken down, said that her parents wouldn't have to worry about her being lynched now by white supremacists because the statue of Thomas Jefferson had been taken down. I mean, that's a person who is literally insane. That's uh, There's no other way to understand that. And they are going to college to be one of the people running our country and our institutions soon. There was a Trump speech at Rushmore, Mount Rushmore, that he gave. And CNN covered it by saying that Trump was standing in front of two slave owners and on stolen land. That's how they referenced Mount Rushmore. So one of the weird things about this whole deal is that the answer for every non-Western society is in Western Marxism. (laughs) Edward Said, uh, people should know him from Orientalism, but his central claim was an anti-Western one. He was uninterested in the wrongs of any non-Western country. He said you had to look at, the only way that you could look at it is through a Western lens. So that gave you some kind of bias when you're looking at other cultures. He attacked uh, writers, female writers, specifically George Eliot and Jane Austen for some reason. But Jane Austen specifically, there was one line from one character in one of her novels that even suggested they were an abolitionist. But he found that this was a cancelable offense, the way that she depicted slavery in this one instance. And so attacked Jane Austen. But the whole idea was that the West did things and that non-Western countries had things done to them. And then there's this long section about the Rhodes Scholar and everything behind that and how they were trying to cancel it due to uh, the way Rhodes was, like he supported colonialism or something like that. But there were all these quotes that were attributed to him. And then when somebody went and looked into the quotes, because they were like horrendous quotes, turned out they either manipulated quotes that existed or completely made them up out of whole cloth. 
And, you know, a couple steps down, you realize they were completely made up. There's a section on colonialism and slavery, and slavery specifically, he talks about how it was a constant in almost every society. I mean, everybody knows this by now. The Barbary pirates, they took 1.25 million Europeans from their homes, and this was a part of the Middle Eastern slave trade, and there's something that's obviously not much talked about. Kendi separated bad slavery and worse slavery. The one that used all racial groups was better than the one that used one racial group. But the author suggests that slavery is not the history of what the West got wrong, but what the West got right. It's still maintained in many places than in the rest of the world. Uh, Britain actually led the world in abolition in 1807, so they beat the United States by quite a big leap there. And virtually all the other countries in the world, by abolishing it in 1807, they didn't just abolish it. They sent the Navy around, the Royal Navy around, the world to challenge it, and in so doing freed 150,000 slaves from 1808 to 1860. So this was an, an active effort to try to undermine the institution. And then we get to a whole new target, Winston Churchill. And this is one that Murray takes special interest in because Churchill has become a recent target. And there's this one event where it was an anti-Churchill event at a Churchill college that was named after him. But the point is, and I think he's very right in this, which is something that I hadn't really considered in these terms, is that if Churchill wasn't great enough, you know, with all his oratory skill and the time and moment that he rose to prominence and the things that he accomplished in his life and fighting the greatest obvious evil that anybody has ever seen, if he couldn't be considered great, then nobody has a chance of being considered great. It's a type of means of psychologically attacking, you know, your opponent and saying that even the most inspirational hero of your time isn't good enough and will cancel him too. His legacy will be destroyed over the course of just a few decades. So what is the point for you to do it? There's a, a portion on reparations and he talks about how, you know, all the details have to explicitly be figured out. There's so many complications related to reparations. I give, I think he gives it more credit than is necessary. Then an attack on philosophers, he goes through a number of the philosophers that have been attacked more recently, and the Enlightenment and Enlightenment ideals in specific, all to say that the truth is giving way to my truth, uh, that that's the point, is to change that idea, the standard of there is some truth out there to be discovered to know the truth is mine and I can do with it as I please. And how everybody doesn't get canceled, you know, who knew? So Marx and Engels have had statues actually erected in numerous places over the course of the last few years. There's one in Germany that was actually given by China. And this is despite the fact, and as Murray goes through, there are a bunch of personal letters that were sent between Marx and Engels, where Marx is thoroughly racist, explicitly so, uh, using the words that you're not allowed to use and expressing sentiments that are obviously and clearly just completely wrong. He even weighed the good side of slavery, called it purely economic, and said how important it was as an economic artifact in the country. And he yet has yet to be canceled, of course, uh, despite having done all these things. And then Foucault, Michel Foucault. I remember reading Foucault when I was an undergrad, and I knew nothing of the things, other things that he had done, that he was just clearly and purely a pedophile. He specifically engaged in this. He encouraged the age of consent to be reduced to 12 years old. That was one of uh, the things that he supported. And when I was reading over this part related to Marx and Foucault and how terrible they were on these issues and how on earth they couldn't be canceled yet, you know, I really, <laughs> I thought about it for a second and I was outraged and I was like, wait a minute. I mean, they do things with much more direct connections. They have this double standard uh, all the time, you know, when it comes to Joe Biden and me too. A lot of people forget and I consistently forget that he was accused of a staff member of rape and this was not a cancelable offense. It's not something that's even brought up anymore. 
So this is something that they do on a consistent basis. Uh, so it's not shocking that they can do it for people who have more distance, you know, like Marx and Foucault, which most of the people who espouse their ideas have never read either one of those people. And then racist math. Yeah, this was something I remember this coming out to that objectivity and punctuality and logic were symptoms of white supremacy. They were white supremacist tactics. Things like the meritocracy was racist. Standardized tests are racist. And I think this is where we run into the most important idea that comes out of this thing is uh, the idea of resentment or resentment. And he references Nietzsche. Of course, <laughs> it's going to be the part where he references Nietzsche that I'm most fond of. But Nietzsche talked about this many decades ago, how people would sanctify revenge with the term justice. So the idea is that this is all just about revenge. They want to turn happy people into unhappy people. They want the healthy people to be sick like they are. So when you have the idea of resentment, and that's the motivating factor, then everything starts to make much, much more sense. At its heart, it's a yearning for revenge. Someone must be to blame that I feel ill. They're intent on forbidding good emotions, especially things like gratitude. And that's something consistently that you see is that they try to forbid the idea of gratitude for the things that you have. It's constant complaining. It's constant tearing down and stating how terrible everything is. The, and then um, the author goes through a lot of Western culture. He talks about music and cultural appropriation in general. He talks about the Globe Theater, talking or discussing how it wants to decolonize Shakespeare because there are a lot of problematic plays of Shakespeare and challenge whiteness. And there's one school that banned Homer as a dead white problematic man. But Murray, Murray has a lot of interest in kind of the arts, the Western arts. And so he goes into a lot of detail about how a lot of the Western works are canceled in these ways and defends them. Then we have an epilogue about CRT. I think it just kind of the CRT thing blew up a lot more after that because of Christopher Rufo after he had finished the book. So Murray adds this epilogue where he talks about CRT more and Chris Rufo in particular. But he takes it kind of another step because Chris Rufo was asked on this one show, he was asked, okay, what's good about being white? And Rufo avoids the question. And it's understandable because it's a clear landmine, you know, to say anything good about being white in this particular culture. But so he sidesteps it. But for Murray, he's, he said that that was the wrong way to do it, that there is a, a way to discuss it that is in a positive way. He said it could strictly be tied to Western culture and say that that's white culture. He said, though, that that's not necessarily the best way to do it. And then he goes over all the things that have been created by what are disproportionately white people in the Western world. So giving the world a disproportionate number of what the world currently enjoys and have been the most important developments in the history of the world. So things around medicine, technology, the oldest and longest established educational institutions, Bach, Mass, and B minor, which I just listened to, which is amazing, <laughs> about which um, there was this commenter who talked about how they were discussing, okay, if aliens, if we wanted something to send out into the universe for aliens to run into, to kind of describe who we are or give them an idea of our intelligence or whatever, then what should we send? And the Bach Mass in B minor was one that was referenced. And the commenter said that, no, we don't want to show off. <laughs> so it's that good, that good people. But also in reference to this, he talks about how people are not struggling to get into China or Africa. They're not beating down the door to get into those places. There's only one culture that encourages the kind of highly critical dialogue that is allowed in Western culture. And there's only one culture that encourages and has so much diversity in all of its upper ranks. And Africa and Asia do not reciprocate this diversity. 
So he starts flirting with the edge of, of permissible sayability. He says when he starts talking about the positive things about white people and whiteness in general. And references what is extremely salient now, something that just came out, uh, the Great Replacement Theory idea which is another one of those uh, new speak means of you just create package some kind of an idea and say that this thing is toxic and therefore you can't talk about it. But he talks about how it was celebrated that white people would be would not be the majority in particular Western countries very soon, if not already, and how this was celebrated in a lot of corners. But if you did it the other way, if you talked about any other race in that way, then it would be considered absolutely horrendous and unacceptable. So anyway, that's the book. Moving into the analysis of this thing. So this fits a niche. Nobody has offensively lauded Western culture in a long time. It's been kind of beyond the Overton window. And taking Western culture as, uh, to some degree or in some ways, representative of white culture is a massive, dangerously useful step. Whiteness and whatever one could call white culture has been at the behest of interested parties, uh, demonized roundly for decades, reaching a zenith most recently in the original sin of whiteness proffered by CRT. So imagine successfully reclaiming it as a cultural signpost, reclaiming the idea of whiteness. I was concerned this book would be another paint-by-numbers, counter-screed, and in some ways it is. It references a lot of the same things that we saw in Speechless and the Ben Shapiro book and the Mark Levin book, but it really does have its own voice. It seems to come from a genuine affection for Western culture, and it more starkly diagnoses the opposition in its reference to Nietzsche. So it's about the sick, the resentful, as the enemy. They want the illness to spread, and they do not have the same goals as you. So big picture wise, uh, the discussion of the discussion, one tactic used by the the deconstructionists, the demolishers of Western society is instead of allowing a discussion, make it a discussion about the discussion. Whether that's uh, to allow free speech, that's a way to do it, or what words are usable within the discussion, that's another way to do it. Dramatically overselling something such as uh, when it comes to LGBTQ saying that you're denying my existence, the dramatic oversell, to make it about that instead of about the actual discussion. Dogmatically rejecting objective reality, so 2 plus 2 equals 5, and just saying that and, and sticking around that area instead of actually being in a discussion about objectivity and meritocracy and, and the like. These are tactics to shift the playing field to something less secure. It's like, instead of winning on the soccer field with skill and ability and athleticism, you remove the ground from under the opposing players. Now you have to climb back to the playing field just to get a chance at the ball. I think in response to kind of everything that's happening, people have to be willing and inclined to speak laudably about white culture. It will take at least a decade, but it has to be reclaimed as denoting the positive accomplishments of people. This is not an ideal position. Ideally, no person on earth would base their esteem or collective will or inspiration on skin color or gender. They would draw inspiration from more complex characteristics of somebody. However, this does not mean the best strategy is to keep letting your enemy swipe the ground from underfoot so they can cackle in the background while you try to stabilize yourself just to get back into the game. So, anyway, that's the book. That's the discussion. Uh, That was War on the West by Douglas Murray. And I hope you enjoyed it. We have the other four books that are currently pending, and we're going to try to get through those things. We've got uh, very different areas of inquiry in there, and hopefully we can get through them soon. But I hope all is well, and I hope to see you on the next one. All right, bye.